Okay, this morning we are in the, back in the book of Colossians. So take your Bibles and turn there. Let me read this morning from Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 through verse 23. Colossians 1, verse 15. It says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in heaven, in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body of the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you to in his fleshly body through his death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Verse 23, if indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. Let's pray. Father, this morning, as we look at your word, and as we understand what it says, that you would allow every single one of us here to not only understand the gospel and believe it and live it, but Lord, when the trouble comes, when we're thrown off center, that we would hold fast and that we would persist in the gospel. And I pray this this morning, in Christ's name, amen. In about 1604, a man named Jonathan Burr grew up in a Christian home, and then he became a pastor of a church in Suffolk, England. He started preaching the gospel there and started expounding the word of God, and the Church of England didn't like it, so they dismissed him. And so he said, okay, if it doesn't work out in old England, I'll go to New England. That's Massachusetts. And so he went to Massachusetts, and he began to preach and start a church there, and the Lord really made him successful in his ministry. But in between the time from leaving England to come to the United States to establish a church, he got smallpox, and he was at the point of near death. And he prayed, Lord, if you want me to continue on and preach, you you're going to have to heal me. And the Lord did heal him. And after that happened, he actually dedicated himself fully to the Lord. And he came up with a personal covenant. And in his covenant, he wrote down several things. He said, first of all, that I will aim only to at, aim, aim only at his glory and the, uh, the good of souls and not my own glory. Secondly, he says, I will walk humbly with the lower, lower thoughts of myself, considering that I am a puff of breath sustained by the power of grace alone. Thirdly, he says, I will be more watchful over my heart to keep it in due uh, season and the frame of holy obedience without running so far after the creature, for I have seen that he is my only help in the time of need. Fourthly, he says, I, I will put, my, put more weight in the firm promises that he's given us in the truth and the word of God than anything else. And then he says, fifthly, that I will set up God more in my family, myself, and my wife, and my children, and I will remember death 
in myself I am nothing, in Christ all things. And then later on after his ministry in New England, he ended up dying at the age of 37. And while he was on his dying bed, the last words he said to his wife, he says, our parting is for a time. Cast your care upon God, and he will care for thee. And then he said this to her before his last breath, hold fast, hold fast. Now I say that because in verse number 23 of Colossians chapter 1, we actually get something very important being said to us here. It says, if indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel. The little particle if introduces to us a conditional clause, which assumes to be true about the Colossians, but it should also be true about us, that the gospel has brought us into an abiding state of Standing steady and firm on a sure foundation. The exhortation for us is not to merely continue to be steady and firm in the gospel, but to continue, but to continue and then some. In other words, to be persisting in it. When I was training, when I was a training instructor in the Marine Corps, I could tell who were the ones who would make it through the training. It was usually not the biggest or the most muscular or even the most competent, but it was the ones who were persistent. That no matter what was thrown in their way, they found a way to overcome and press on. And it's very true of believers that are growing in their faith, that they cannot be moved they refuse to be moved away from the hope of the gospel. And scripture will do that with us, so they will persist and they will hold fast. So this morning, there are four things to observe in order to hold fast to the gospel. The, four, the first four I'll go through very quickly, and then the last one I'll spend some time on. The first one is this that why should we persist in the gospel is the question. Well, the first is to persist in the gospel that delivered to you the faith. Now, notice again in verse number 23, and I'll spend time on verse 23. It says, if indeed you continue in the faith. So the gospel provides us a firm basis for belief and practices and produces in us immovable inward convictions that the gospel is established on a sure foundation and its structure is surely sound. And those who believe the gospel will also remain in the condition of firmness. If you look over to chapter 2 in verse number 5, it says something similar. It says, For even though I am absent in body, Nevertheless, I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ or the firmness of your faith in Christ. So the faith here is either the settled body of apostolic truth that has been delivered to the saints or it is the personal trust in Jesus Christ. I believe both are included in the context of Colossians, and the faith applies to one's convictions, which must be well-grounded in scriptures and able to make one strong and solid and unmovable. And truly, as Christians learn scriptural truth, they become strong in the faith and in the conviction that God will never leave them or forsake them. They de by developing convictions, 
based on the study of the word of God, the believer is able to cling to the faith, the body of truth delivered to us, and the relationship they have with Jesus Christ in the face of attack and in the face of error, in the face of false teaching. Because remember, Colossians is a book written to warn us against false teaching. And the enemy's goal is to distort the biblical doctrine that has been given to us and the God-pleasing way to live life. And these distortions of truth and heresies want to spoil us. They want to cheat us. They want to make us captive to the old way and move us away from the truth of the gospel. And so he's writing in verse number 23, and he's telling them, listen, if indeed you continue in the faith, the superiority of the gospel is seen in that the whole subject and content is true. As in verse number 5 of chapter 1, where it says, of which you previously heard the word of truth, the gospel. It is not a word of a guess. It is not a word of probable inference, but it is the infallible truth of God. There may be other things that are true in the world, but God's word is the essence of truth, and the gospel reveals to us the essence of the grace of God, that these believers in Colossae heard the gospel before they heard false teaching. So abandoning the gospel that they, that they heard and they believed and they embraced would be a very disastrous thing, even deadly. In fact, the Colossians, Colossian believers have already experienced being transformed in their mind to know the good and the acceptable and perfect will of God. And the gospel has already taken root and growing and bearing fruit in their own life. And they see it not only in themselves, but in the church of those who have been born again in Christ Jesus. So to abandon it would be eternally foolish. A second thing to observe is to persist in the gospel that is personal. In verse number 23, it says, if indeed you continue. And then at the end of that verse, and that you have heard. And then up to verse number 5 of chapter 1, it says, of which you previously heard, and then verse number 6, which has come to you. So the gospel itself is very personal. It comes to you. It shows you your sin. It shows the plan of God on how to be rescued from that sin and receive forgiveness, and then you go on to live in a relationship with Jesus Christ. So it is very personal, the gospel. A third thing to observe is that we ought to persist in the gospel because it is universal. In verse number 23, it says, which has pro it, it was proclaimed in all creation under heaven that the gospel is seen in its universal outreach. It's for all people in all the world that the gospel was not contained in one locale, that biblical Christianity spread rapidly through the known world at that time and as it does today. Also, it was not restricted to a particular culture or nation or tribe. It has the power to influence all sorts of people, all groups of people, whenever they live, past, present, and future. Historically, all schisms and heresies are partial and local. And of course, this is a a refute against the false teachers because false teaching tends to be local and regional. But the gospel goes through the whole world and draws all kinds of people, so therefore scripture is intended for everyone, not just for the educated, not for the religious elite, not for some special group with superior knowledge. It is for everyone. It is even for you. The gospel is still going out to everyone, everywhere on this earth at this very moment. 
fourthly, the fourth thing to observe is to persist in the gospel that is authoritative. In verse number 23, it says, of which I, Paul, became a minister. See, the gospel has come to us from a divine source, God himself. And Jesus has chosen faithful servants and gave them authority to be his representatives and spokesmen on this earth. The gospel has and is being preached by faithful servants of Christ from the apostles and prophets, including Paul, and all loyal evangelists and pastor teachers today. And the authority that is given to them is given to them in the word of God, that the power and authority is never in the man. It is always in the truth of God's word. And the truth of God's word has authority. And that authority has been given to us by God to proclaim to those who have not yet heard it yet and to those who have heard it so they can grow in their faith. This brings me, fifthly, to the last one, to observe that to persist in the gospel that is charged with hope. I want you to see it again in verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, and not moved away from the hope, of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. That hope here can be defined as a mighty certainty. What makes Christian hope so strong is a growing knowledge of God. That hope here is the realization that you have been called to be a saint and a faithful Christian. And you have been called by God and by his gospel. That the call came from this offer of the gospel in which you responded in repentance and faith. And so God brings his children from an empty, false, deceptive, dead hope to a strong, active, living hope. And the hope rests on God's power and in his promise And Jesus, remember, was raised to life. We will live because he lives. So hope speaks to our response to God's promise. In other words, he offers us hope, and we can have hope in him and his guarantees. We can believe them with confidence. So then the hope, of course, is not an I hope so hope. I hope it happens is just wishful longing. A biblical hope looks forward with utter conviction and expectancy. It is not a hope mingled with uncertainty and doubt. Those who live in doubt, or I can better say those who live in doubt are really not believing. The opposite of faith is unbelief are really certainly denying the hope that God gives them that is actually true. A person who is not firm on the gospel is a person who is easily persuaded by other opinions and other teachings. They end up becoming double-minded, unstable, and tossed around by every wind of teaching. Now, this, this particular teaching is found other places in the Bible. And what happens to this group of people is that they do not mature, and they are warned because of their lack of maturity against apostasy. In other words, walking away from the faith, not being steadfast in it, not being firm in the faith. Like it says in Ephesians chapter 4, it says, As a result, we no longer are to be children tossed here and there by every wind and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness in deceitful scheming. We're not to be those kind of people. And then when we were looking at 1 Peter, 1 Peter said to us in chapter 3, 
Second Peter chapter 3, verse 16, it says, Also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and the unstable distort, as they do also the rest of Scripture, to their own destruction. It says, For you, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard, so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness. So all the apostles are concerned that once somebody comes to faith, they, they remain steadfast in their faith and strong in their faith, and they become someone who cannot be moved because their foundation will not shift or become like sand. So the bottom line, as long as a believer in Christ continues growing in their faith, they will become established. They will become firm, not moved away from the hope held out in the gospel. They will experience the reality of being new in Christ. Christ will be their sole focus. He will be their center. And then when he is, they will understand the newness that has come into their life. However, the battle does not end when you come to Christ. Have you not realized that yet? Matter of fact, the battle just begun when you come to Christ. You don't realize how much is up against you, that you realize that the Christian life is impossible unless it's the power of God working in me and the gospel of hope that he's given me, I will surely fall away. I will surely move away from the hope held out in the gospel. And all over scripture, the scripture tells us there's going to be a battle. There's going to be struggling. There's going to be wrestling. There's going to be striving. You, every epistle you read in, that's what you find. Like in Ephesians 6, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We wrestle against spiritual wickedness in high places. And then in Philippians, it says, you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And then he tells us in Philippians, for to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but to suffer for his sake. So believing in Christ and suffering go together. So the struggle should never take you by surprise. And it was the Apostle Paul at the end of his life, right when he was going to get his head chopped off, this is what he said, I fought the good fight. I have established or I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. I did not move away from the body of doctrine that was delivered to the apostles. I stuck with it and I preached it. And now I'm dying for it. But he know that's easy to do when you have hope. See, the question that rises from our text this Lord's Day is found in the little word if, which indicates a condition. If indeed you continue in the faith. So the condition is, will you continue to follow Christ or will you not? See, the reality is that there are forces of spiritual wickedness in high places that want to move you and I away from the truth of the message of the gospel. The enemy now attempts to drag you and I away from our refuge and our protection. See, Satan and his minions take great effort to keep us from the hope of the gospel. See, once you, you have it, once you are in Christ, he wants to drag you away from him. That's what he wants to do, and he is good at doing it. This is why you and me need to be firmly established in verse 23 and steadfast into the hope of the gospel, and it is a hope based on a promise. But a promise is only as good as the one who makes it. And who makes the promise? God makes the promise, right? Titus chapter 1, verse 2, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago. 
So God made the promise, and God has to keep his promise because his promise is equal to the height of his name. Also, this hope that we have obtained came through grace. It tells us in Thessalonians, and good hope by grace, it comes through the word of God. It comes through the gospel, as we see in our passage, and it comes through faith. So in Scripture, this hope is also described as good, as living, sure and steadfast. It's described as being blessed. Christians are called to this hope. They are to rejoice in this hope. They are, to, they are bound in this hope. Therefore, we should hold fast to this hope. We should continue in this hope, and we should not move, be moved from it. So our hope has an object, and that object is a person, and the person is Jesus Christ. He is the object of our salvation. He is the object of our righteousness. He is the object of our future resurrection. So then Christ's glorious appearing is what we are looking for. As Titus again says, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. And if you go through Scripture, you will find that the wicked person has no ground for this hope. They have no ground to stand on it. Ephesians tells us the cut, that remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers of the covenants of promise, having no hope, without God in the world. Oh, yes, the wicked person, the unbeliever, does have hope, but not in the true and living God. They have hope in everything else except God. They hope in the uncertainty of riches. They hope in themselves. They hope in their own philosophy. But they have no hope. And yet the the Proverbs tells us, the wisdom books... The hope of the righteous is gladness, but the expectation of the wicked perishes. Yet not to have hope is a very dangerous place to be. People contemplating suicide is mostly as a a result of despair, of depression, and utter hopelessness. The usual treatment plan plans for such a condition of hopelessness is pills and chemical prescriptions, psychotherapy, hormone treatments, nutritional supplementation, herbal remedies, and even shock treatments. These treatments are given because it is viewed as a psychological disease in which you must change, improve, or correct brain chemistry. Yet, The Bible approaches hopelessness in any form from guilt and anxiety to depression and suicide in a very different way. The Bible simply calls it disobedience, a refusal to trust our faithful and loving God. And yet all over Scripture, like in Proverbs, it says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Again, in the Psalms, it says, when I am afraid, I will put my trust in you. And then in Psalm 62, trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. So scripture points people to the basis of true hope, namely God himself, that the Lord has given much knowledge in modern medical science to care for legitimate diseases and health conditions. And we ought to be thankful for this because that's from the hand of God too. Yet when it comes to finding real, genuine hope in this life, God's word is clear. The source is always and only the Lord himself. Paul even said right in 1 Timothy chapter 1.1 in his epistle to pastors, he said this, Paul, an apostle of Christ, according to the commandment of our God and Savior, 
and of Christ Jesus, who is our hope. Unfortunately, you and I know people who have made a profession of faith in Christ and followed Jesus for a while, but they are not now living for Christ and following in his footsteps. Some of Jesus' seemingly real disciples have were drawn away and no longer walking with Jesus. Others, it says in Scripture, outright desert because they love the present world more than Christ, and then they drop off. And these are painful happenings. But we are not alone in our experience. The Apostle John recorded that this very same thing happened to Jesus and happened to the Apostle Paul. As it said in the scripture we read this morning, after Jesus preached the message, it says, no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. As a result of this and what he preached before that, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away also, do you? Simon Peter answered and said, what did he say to him? Lord, whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. See, that's firmness of faith. That's in the opposition of when the truth is proclaimed and everybody leaves. Will you leave? Will you stay? So the exhortation this morning is make sure you're not the one who moves away from the hope of the gospel. We cannot slip into complacency and presumption. The message is to hold your ground Put on the whole armor of God and take your stand. Do not move away from what has been given to you. And that is the hope of the gospel. What what does that mean? There are many things included when considering the hope of the gospel of Christ that that he has brought to us. I can't mention all of them because we would be here all day. But I'll mention a few of them. What about right in Colossians chapter 1, verse 22? The hope of full salvation. Not partial salvation. Now salvation where God will give you a part and you've got to work for the rest. No, full salvation. Notice what he says in verse number 22 of chapter 1. Yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to do what? To present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. See, we are saved, the Bible says, we are being saved, and we will be saved. That's the hope that we have, that we have already learned that Jesus Christ is the preeminent one in the salvation of sinners. No other person could redeem us, forgive us, transfer us out of the domain of darkness into the kingdom of God and make us fit for the Christian life and the kingdom of God. No one else could do that. That's why we give thanks to the Father, because he has done everything. Salvation altogether is entirely of God. And because of that, we thank God that he enabled us to not only understand it, but enjoy our salvation, because he qualified us and rescued us and transferred us and bought us with his own blood. See, That's the glorious character of great salvation. God the Father has delivered those who are truly believers in Christ from this domain of darkness and has changed their nature and given them a new heart. And if you believe in Christ, you are free from present and future condemnation as to all your sins. You are faultless without blemish above reproach. Nothing could accuse you or condemn you. The blood washing has already cleansed you and removed the possibility that your sins will ever have dominion over you again to send you away from God. So then, stick around. You have everything you need in Christ. You are complete in Christ. This hope purifies a hope that we will be like Christ, a hope we shall see his face. 
a hope his name will be on our foreheads, a hope of complete forgiveness and full justification, hope that there will not remain in us any root of bitterness, no blemish of evil, no pattern of iniquity will be found in us. See, this is your hope. Don't move away from it. In fact, Colossians 1.27 says it pretty clear to us. It says, To whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentile, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. See, hope of full salvation is one of them. What about hope of full perseverance? Final perseverance, you'll make it to the end. No matter what comes in your life, you'll make it to the end. If you notice in Colossians chapter 1, verse number 5, it says, Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard the word of truth, the gospel. So, in other words, if the hope we received in the gospel is laid up for us in heaven, well, we will, but we'll make it to the end. In other words, we'll make it to the end. It's not depending on you, it's depending on God. What an encouraging thought that those made righteous by Jesus Christ will hold out till the end no matter what. And because from scriptures we know that we have this confidence. Jesus, John the Apostle records in John 10, I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. And if you didn't believe that, he says in the next passage, my father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. Now that's double right there. Double security given to us. And then Paul says, I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ. So if you are regenerate, truly born again, you can't lose the divine life. We are not born again and again and again. There is no hope that that is in the belief that one day you could be saved and the next day you lose it. If that's true, it's not God's salvation. It may be your own salvation, it's not God's, because it's not scriptural. See, those who fall away were never in grace to begin with. I like what Hebrews tells us, Take care, brethren, that none be in any of you, and there none be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. If you have an evil, unbelieving heart, you're not a believer. So you fell away from possibly the truth of what it means to be a Christian, but you never believed it yourself where it regenerated you. And then also in Hebrews 6.6, 6, and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. And that's a group of people who have the full knowledge of the truth but they don't come all the way over and believe. They, under, they see, they even understand it, but they don't believe. They don't take it to themselves. So if you indeed believe in Christ, he will keep you to the end. See, that's hope. That's the promise God gives us. What about the hope of resurrection? Our bodies will drop in physical death. But the voice of our Lord Jesus will call our bodies to raise incorruptible and be made new. The Gospel of John again, truly I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. God will raise people from the dead. Jesus says that I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I give for the life of the world is my flesh. See, our body shall rise again because our greatest enemy has been dealt with completely by Christ. 
He has abolished death, Scripture says, and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. John 14, 19, after a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me because I live and you will live also. See, Christ is risen. We will rise. See, that's a hope we have. And that's a hope when you go to a funeral. If there's no hope there, there's genuine sorrow. But if there's hope there, there's sorrow mingled with a lot of joy. (laughs) Because that person you know especially if you've known them and they walk with the Lord, they're in the presence of God. They're doing a lot better than you then. See, that's the hope that we have. See, that's the hope that keeps us going, that keeps us firm and established. The world has no hope like that. That's why they need the gospel so desperately. What about the hope of the coming of Christ? If you die first, you will meet him. Yet we all will see our Redeemer when he stands in the latter days upon the earth. In Colossians 3 and verse number 4, it says, When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Now, it's exciting to study the second coming of Christ, where it says in Zechariah, remember when Jesus left out of this world and went back to heaven? Two angels standing there, and White said, this same Jesus that left will return right here, the Mount of Olives. He's leaving. What does Zechariah say? In that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives will be split in the middle from the east to the west by a very large valley so that half the mountain will move toward the north and the other half will move toward the south. Jesus is coming back again. Now, I believe in Zechariah there, we'll be with him. Because the rapture, uh, God takes the saints out before wrath. Tribulation is the wrath. And then at the end of the tribulation is the second coming. When Jesus returns to the earth with us, at that time, all humanity will see him. He will come right to the Mount of Olives, and it will be after wrath. He saves Israel from the Antichrist, and it will be how it happens. It won't be a surprise like a thief in the night. That is the rapture, but it will be a climax of unfolding events. So the exhortation is, do not be moved away from the hope of the gospel. And these four things express the believer's hope. And now the question to ask is, how may we be moved away from the hope of the gospel? Because that's why he's writing this passage in this text. The false teachers have come in. And so they are trying to move people away. Well, I think there's several ways we could be moved away from the hope of the gospel. At least, at least in thought. The first one is this, false teaching. In Colossians the most obvious thing we find in Colossians is, is the false teachers. If you listen to any teaching which puts your working and your doing in the place of Christ, you will be swindled out of the hope of the gospel. All false teachers prove to have similar qualities. The first one is they have the ability to persuade others that their position is equal or superior in validity to what that person presently held. Secondly, they have an intense desire to have their own following of disciples. And how they do that is they pervert the path of previously held truth and they encourage acceptance and participation with the seemingly harmless and culturally accepted practices that they are espousing. And people buy into this all the time. Yet, when we look at Scripture, look at Colossians chapter 2, verse 16. Notice what he says very emphatically in these passages. In verse number 16, he says, Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival, a new moon, a Sabbath day, these things are a mere shadow of what is to come. 
but the substance belongs to Christ. And then in verse 18, let no one keep defrauding you, your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind. See, the false teachers say, the Colossians and all believers who believe in Christ should live this certain way. And they would set up the standards of living that way. And was that an ascetic lifestyle or an antinomian lifestyle? That means there's no rules. I'll live according to my flesh, whatever my flesh. Because remember, they separated spirit from material. And the flesh is material, so it doesn't matter. I can do anything I want in my flesh. And that's why he says in Colossians chapter 2, verse 23, there are these are matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and the severe treatment of the body, but they have no value against fleshly indulgence. And, of course, the worship of angels. Got to worship somebody and something. Somebody is worshiping something all the time. If you don't worship the true and living God, you are worshiping something. So they worship here the angels because they were un, they thought they were undefiled beings so that they were honored by ritual and self, uh, self-discipline uh, and as a way of getting to God. And, of course, mystical experiences. It says visions he has seen inflated without cause, people having visions, writing books about dying and going to heaven and talking to God and coming back and writing these books and making a lot of money doing it. And people will eat this stuff up. Like, this is something that is something to stand firm on. This is just shifting sand. That's all it is. See, false teaching will move you away from the hope of the gospel. A second thing in Colossians is the philosophy of men. The false teachers are presenting themselves as smarter. Some people are impressed by people with superior minds that they are so taken by the persuasiveness of their arguments that they believe they have an option to take besides the gospel. Colossians chapter 2, verse 4. I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive argument. And then in chapter 2, verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world rather than according to Christ. So they are, in other words, dazzled by a person's superior mind. They become convinced against what is actually true in the word of God. And if you take error in, you will be removed from the hope of the gospel of your calling, which is free grace received by faith, which is in Christ Jesus the Lord alone. Don't be dazzled by intellectual ability or the ability of of some men to write very convincingly or to write a blog that people are reading that says, you know what, I never thought about that, you know? You've got to be firm on Scripture to know that when you read these things, you're not going to be pulled away from the hope of the gospel. And then other things could be, what about feelings and emotions? If our decision to give ourselves to Christ came only on emotion, not fact, we would fade. But how much stuff today in the world of evangelicalism is based on feelings? The Lord told me this, and the Lord told me that. Oh, I feel this, and I feel that. And they get swayed, and that's the whole world is this. See, living by our feelings, happy or sad, is not the standard. It is never the standard. Our feelings are so fleeting and faulty and changing. How can we base anything on them? But I do tell you this, that true doctrine And firmness in doctrine will inform your feelings in the right way. See, the only reason why I believe I'm saved, I'm saved because I trust Christ. 
It is faith that does it, not feelings. Sometimes I don't feel saved. Sometimes I don't feel like a a Christian. Do you? I don't, because my feelings are all over the place. But I, I know one thing. The fact that Christ saved me will never change. It will never change. And see, that's firmness. And that will keep you where you ought to be. What about this? What about lack of fellowship? You know, because of COVID, a lot of people have drifted away. And now they're watching something on TV this morning or on on Zoom, right? And Zoom has some good things. Uh, It has some bad things, too. I think most people today are Zoomed out, right? So without proper fellowship, we shall surely be drawn away from God. Why? Because this is God's plan, the church. See, God has designed the church for your benefit and my benefit, for your protection, for your growth. So if you drift away from the gathering of believers, you will be like a sheep who wanders off from the fold. And when that happens, the danger level goes up quickly and exponentially. You have left the protection of the herd and the shepherd's care and protection. That's why in Hebrews, for all those Hebrews who came to faith, they often had to be prodded with this saying, let's consider, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking ourselves, our assembling together as a habit of some, but encouraging one another as and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So the fellowship of believers, if you think you're going to have church in your own living room somewhere and everything's going to be fine theologically, you're wrong. You are a target of the enemy, and he is going to pull you away from the firmness firmness of the gospel. And then there's always unconfessed sin. Past and present sins, small and great, will lead you into despair. But remember, repentance and faith is available to turn from sin with the belief Christ can and will forgive you. Proverbs says, he who conceals his transgression will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. See, we need to confess our sins, past ones too, and let Christ's death be sufficient for them. Many become so frustrated by continued failures like sins and restarts, they give up. See, a sin that becomes a habit will move you away from the hope of the gospel. And as it says in 1 John, if you live habitually in sin, you're giving no evidence you're a Christian. What about the worries of life? The worries of life. Anybody here not get worried about things? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, for your heavenly Father knows that you are in need of all of them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow. For tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Is that not true? See, see, we need to stay focused on Christ and pursue him so that the worries of life do not choke him out. And then just the last thing is, what about the deceitfulness of riches? It seems like today there's a, a real emphasis on riches. What did, what did Paul tell Timothy and write in Timothy? He says, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. If you attach yourself to the wrong hope of life, Rather than your relationship with God, 
you will be in danger of moving away from the hope of the gospel. Even in Hebrews, it says, make sure that your character is free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Are you content with what you have? And why should I be content? Because it says in Hebrews, I will never leave you. I'll never desert you, it says, nor will I ever forsake you. That's the promise that we have in God, and that's the hope that we have to live another day, to take another step, to to breathe in another breath, because we have this hope. And these last two, the worries of life and the deceitfulness of riches, is really the stranglehold that distracts the heart, like it says in the parable of the sower, and others are the ones whom the seed was sown among the thorns. These are the ones who have heard the word, but the worries of life and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. So here, this person hears the word, but attempts to mix it with the pleasures of life. He, he's preoccupied with worldly matters. See, they quickly are distracted by the pursuit of career, of a house, of possessions, of cars and sports, of partying, of getting wealthy or prestige, and riches of life and everything else. Their model usually is, I want Christ and the world and all that is have to offer. So they, for them, Christ is just to check the box. See, the present life is more important than the life to come. They have more pleasure in cash than Christ, says Atkin. Their stuff is more important than the Savior. The soil of their heart is full of malignant weeds that could never bear fruit. And what does Hebrews tell us? Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. So why shouldn't we move away from the hope of the gospel? Well, there's no place to go. Isn't that what the disciple says? Where are we going to go, Lord? You have the words of eternal life. There's no place to go. And why would I want to go anyplace anywhere with, with the riches that I have in Christ? The hope that I have in Christ. Also, if you want to be moved away from the gospel, you know what's next is? Back to slavery. The slavery of your own sin. The slavery of the sin that kept you down all your life. You want to go back there? You want to go through all that pain and the pain that you've given other people? No, you, there's nowhere to go. Or the thought that you desert the Savior? To search for salvation in some other place or some other way? When there is none. See, Satan's cry is this. Come away and be free. That is the biggest lie ever told. When you serve Satan, you are his slave. And he is a ruthless master. But remember, when you become a Christian, you are also a slave. But you're a slave of Christ, who's a good master. And he's kind, and he's gracious, and he's loving, and he's merciful. And he's taking care of you, and he protects you till you make it into his presence. That's the hope we have. So let me just conclude with this. Colossians chapter 1, verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. And all God's people said, let's pray. Lord, thank you for the word of God. Thank you, Lord, for the foundation that you have given us. Thank you, Lord, that we're not on shifting sand. We are on solid rock. And we know, Lord, that rock is you. So we praise you, Lord, for the word of God. Lord, make us people 
who will persist in the gospel. No matter what's thrown our way, no matter what curveballs come across our path, Lord, please let us hold firm to the truth of the gospel and let us not be moved away from it no matter what. Thank you, Lord, for this hope you've given us. It's a hope that only the children of God can have. And I praise you for it. In Christ's name, amen.